With the onset of escalating climate change, our misbegotten industrial food system is one of our greatest vulnerabilities. It's an accident waiting to happen, but it's not an accident. It's by design. Dangerously fossil-fueled, toxic, and monocultural, it's also insanely centralized. Fortunately, the countervailing locavore movement is spreading rapidly, and it will increasingly become a matter of survival and resilience in the face of radical environmental disruptions. Creating a far more decentralized, diverse, locally self-reliant food system is also a critical path to building prosperous local economies and creating local jobs. What, but what will it really take to build a more localized food shed? Our Bioneers Dreaming New Mexico project has been looking at that question, and here's just a taste of what we've been learning. Think like a food shed. Map the land according to agro-eco-regions. Different places are appropriate for different crops, both biologically and culturally. View each agro-eco-region through a climate change lens. Consider the ability to sequester carbon, rely on groundwater during drought, to diversify and to perform ecosystem services. Define local. Is it locally grown, processed, manufactured, marketed, sold, within what range of food miles? Build green greenhouses for integrated food webs such as vegetables, fish, and mushrooms that can scale up for neighborhoods, communities, and entire regions. Look beyond just farms and farmers to the whole system of food entrepreneurship, training, and finance. It takes a village to feed a village. Use import substitution to grow many more appropriate crops locally. Institute food fair trade policies and certification at the city level and the state level. Fair trade policies make trade a positive and link with other values-driven food producers. Make the local food economy a bright line local political issue for candidates and public servants, including using city, county, and state institutional purchasing power. Michael Pollan has been at the forefront of advancing this kind of emerging locavore movement. Michael's done more than perhaps any other single national figure to serve up food for thought about our food systems and diet. He has the rare gift of being able to shift our perception, those subtle few degrees that reveal the world anew. As a journalist and author, he's courageously ventured into some of the most controversial briar patches of American food culture. Perhaps part of his secret is that as a passionate gardener, he gravitates to the pragmatic and to the empirical. Securely grounded in the literal and the factual, he can subversively entertain the lyrical and the visionary. Michael's the author of several award-winning books, including the current bestseller, The Omnivore's Dilemma, A Natural History of Four Meals, a masterpiece on the ethics and ecology of eating. The revised edition for young people has just come out, and he'll be talking about that with some young people here this afternoon. He also wrote The Botany of Desire, A Plant's Eye View of the World, where he shape-shifted into a plant for a keen look at how plants might actually be calling the shots in their co-evolutionary dance with us unsuspecting human beings. And on October 28th, watch for the two-hour documentary of, Bo of Botany of Desire on public TV. As a contributing editor to the New York Times Magazine, he's expertly covered polarizing topics ranging from genetic engineering and animal agriculture to the co-optation of organic farming by agribusiness. 
He's written for Harper's, where he served for many years as executive editor, as well as for Mother Jones, Vogue, Gourmet, and House and Garden. His journalism has won awards too numerous to mention. Michael serves as the Knight Professor of Journalism at UC Berkeley, as well as the director of the Knight Program in Science and the Environment. He's helping students and professionals shift the state of science, environmental and food reporting those critical few degrees that really help us understand the impacts of our food choices and see the world anew. Please join us in welcoming the omnivorous Michael Pollan. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm just going to put this up here for a little bit later. I brought us a little snack. <laughs> Doesn't look like I have enough for everybody. So the first, uh, you know, whoever gets up here first can have it. Thanks, Kenny, for that, that generous introduction. Um, you know, I, was, I stood on the stage three years ago. I think it was three years ago. And talked about local food. I gave a talk called Beyond the Barcode. And uh, some of you, I'm sure, were here. And I've been thinking when I was preparing my remarks just how far we've come in three years. It's really amazing. <laughs> what was that? You know, the term locavore, I don't even know if it had been coined three years ago. I think it was coined like two years ago. And, um, and this critique of the industrial food system uh, that has been articulated on this stage for many, many years has now gone mainstream. It's on the cover of Time magazine. Uh, it was in the movie Food, Inc., which if you haven't seen it, I hope you'll take a look at it. It's being shown today at 4.30. Um, so I want to give you kind of a state of the movement talk, OK? And see where we are. And I don't want to pat ourselves on the back too much, because there's a very long way to go. Because one of the things that's happened, one of the newer things that's happened to me, certainly, and to other people in the movement, is there is a whole lot of pushback from the industry. Um, and uh, uh, so the, by no means is the battle won. Uh, I want to start by reading a quote by a prominent uh, critic of the American food system and see if you can guess who this is. Our entire agricultural system is built on cheap oil. As a consequence, our agriculture sector actually is contributing more greenhouse gases than our transportation sector. And in the meantime, it's creating monocultures that are vulnerable to national security threats are now, are now vulnerable to sky-high food prices or crashes in food prices, huge swings in commodity prices, and are partly responsible for the explosion in our health care costs because they're contributing to type 2 diabetes, stroke and heart disease, obesity, all the things that are driving our huge explosion in health care costs. Anybody recognize those words? Yeah, those are Barack Obama's words, uh, remarkably enough. Um, and uh, so we have a, uh, uh, this was during the campaign, a year ago, uh, right now, actually, when he said these things. We have a president who can connect the dots between the, um, the way we grow food in this country and the health care crisis on one, on one side, and on the other side, between the way we grow food in this country and climate change and the energy crisis. Uh, I don't think we've had that before, and that is very encouraging. <laughs> He's also spoken uh, since the election about the need to reform subsidies, although he hasn't gotten very far with that, and the need to revitalize rural economies and hook up schools with local food producers. 
Uh, his agriculture secretary is speaking a lot about local foods and the importance of uh, nurturing these, these economies. Um, so there is a sound emerging from Washington, the likes of which we have not heard before. Uh, and that's very good news. And it isn't just talk. Uh, we also have Kathleen Merrigan, who is now the Deputy Secretary of Agriculture, who started the organic program uh, while she was in Senator Leahy's office and then at the uh, USDA. So there is, uh, you know, these fringy voices are inside. And that's very good news. Um, uh, and we, of course, have Michelle Obama planting a garden, an organic garden, <laughs> and talking about food in a very new way. Um, but the question is, is there a mandate for change? Obama didn't run on a platform of reforming agriculture. Um, and we haven't, I don't think, built that mandate yet. And I think that's a lot of what needs to be done. But I would submit that Obama will address food issues um, because he is quickly discovering that he cannot address the issues he did run on, which is to say health care, which is to say energy independence, which is to say climate change. He cannot address any of those three issues without looking at food. Food is at the nexus of those three issues. Um, and let me just very quickly, you know this, but I, let me just talk about this a little bit. Um, the food system, by which I mean the way we grow food, but also the way we process it and transport it around the world, uses more fossil fuel, close to 20% of the total, and contributes more greenhouse gas, somewhere between 15 and 33%, uh, to the atmosphere than any other industry. Um, some, uh, and since World War II, we have taken this food system, which used to give us two calories of food, and remember calories is just a unit of measurement for energy of any kind, two calories of food for every one calorie of fossil fuel we put in, in the form of diesel for our tractors um, or transportation costs. We now have a food system that gives us one calorie of food energy for every 10 calories of fossil fuel we put into it. So we're, we're operating at a huge deficit. We are eating oil and spewing greenhouse gases when we do. Now, I want to just um, take a moment of your attention because that sounds kind of abstract um, to illustrate exactly how much oil we are eating when we eat this delectable item. <laughs> Double quarter pounder with cheese. Now. Excuse my littering. <laughs> How much oil is in this burger? Well, I worked with uh, uh, an ecologist and a geophysicist to see if we could come up with some numbers. This is a very conservative number. Each of these is eight ounces. Eight. Sixteen. How is this oil getting in the system? A lot of it is in the form of the fossil fuels that you need to make the fertilizer to grow the corn and the soy that produces, that feeds the animals that produces the burger. A lot of it is to make the pesticides to keep those fields, those monocultures from collapsing. 24 ounces and two more ounces. That's right, 26 ounces of oil to produce one of these. 
I mean, do we have to argue about sustainability? This is not a sustainable burger. Um, case closed. It's a disgusting way to eat. It's just chocolate syrup. <laughs> um, that same burger actually tastes pretty good. That same burger uh, puts 13 pounds of carbon into the atmosphere. That is the equivalent of burning seven pounds of coal or driving your car 13 miles. So this is a way that, you know, if we really are going to tackle climate change and energy, we're going to have to look at feedlot agriculture. Um, the other important driver of change, I think, is going to be the health care crisis. Um, you know, we've been talking a lot about health care. We've heard this number. We're spending over $2 trillion a year to treat Americans. Well, look, at break that down. The CDC says three-quarters of that amount is going to treat preventable, these are its words, preventable chronic diseases. Now, not all of those are linked to diet. You've got smoking in there and alcoholism, but most of them are. More than $500 billion a year goes to treat preventable chronic diseases linked to diet. The healthcare crisis is a euphemism for the catastrophe of the American diet. And And basically, the leading product of the American food system today are patients for the American healthcare system. That has to change. So that's the bad news. The food system is broken. People know it increasingly. Farmers know it for sure. Um, and what is responsible for this broken system is largely our agricultural policies. Um, now, this was not their intention to create this system. These policies were very well intended. The policies were essentially, we need lots of cheap calories. We need to organize our subsidies, organize our farms to give us this, because that was the public health problem we had 75 years ago, 100 years ago. We needed more calories that people could afford. So our problems, in a way, are a byproduct of our success. And we should acknowledge the achievement that on less than you can uh, earn in one hour at the minimum wage, you can go into a McDonald's and buy thousands of tasty or semi-tasty calories. That is an achievement. Um, our farmers are very, very productive. But I think as we acknowledge that achievement, we also have to take a clear-eyed view of the cost, the high cost of this cheap food, and design a set of policies that will create a different set of incentives to give us now what we need, because what we need has changed. Our poor are no longer as hungry as they are obese. People on food stamps are fatter than people not on food stamps. They have a bigger problem with obesity. The reason is when you go into a supermarket and you have a dollar to spend, when you're really, you know, scraping by, you are buying calories to feed your family, and you will end up with more of that food than broccoli or carrots. You can get 20, 20, uh, 1,200 calories of cookies or chips, with that dollar, or you can get 250 calories of broccoli. The broccoli costs more than the, um, than the hamburgers. The soda costs less than the milk. Um, so how do you change that? Well, you have to change the incentives. Now, food reform, sustainability, big chaotic subjects, lots of interesting projects going on. There's the locavore movement. There's the community food security movement. There's the uh, school lunch reform movement. Um, I want to see if I can't propose one kind of overarching idea to help us assess all these different initiatives 
and that will take us in the right direction. Um, because there is no one answer, and, and local food is not the only answer. Um, there are many, many things that have to happen. So I want to lay out a kind of framework for reform. You know, the reason we have policies, simple ideas, is so that we can judge everyday decisions, whether they're personal or political, without having to rethink them. So if you have a personal rule, let's say that you don't eat uh, you know, food that your great-grandmother wouldn't recognize, uh, or you won't eat cereals that change the color of the milk that you pour over them, <laughs> that simplifies your life when you're in the supermarket. So we need an idea like that to organize our, uh, our thinking about food system reform. And the idea that I think helps unify what we're talking about, and it was referred to by a speaker earlier today, um, is that we need to wean this American food system off its heavy 20th century diet of fossil fuels and put it back on a diet of contemporary sunshine. To the... To the extent we are pushing the system in that direction, to the extent we are squeezing the fossil fuel out of it and replacing it with sunshine, getting back to that point where one calorie of fossil fuel gave us a net gain, a free lunch, if you will, um, we will be moving in the right direction in terms of our health, because solar food is healthier than fossil fuel food, and in terms of climate change and energy, obviously. So, how do you do that? Well, you need changes at three levels. You need changes on the farms. We need a set of farm policies that will give farmers incentive not to produce as many bushels of corn and soy as they can, which is what the rules of the game are now telling them to do. We need to rewrite those rules so they are rewarded for things like the number of different crops they grow. Do you know right now, if you receive subsidies for corn and soy and wheat and rice, if you want to plant a row of tomatoes, say, or broccoli, you can't. You're not allowed to. You lose your, your classification as subsidized land indefinitely. I've seen, I know a farmer, uh, Troy Rausch, who wanted to do, try, try to get into one of these local markets growing tomatoes in Indiana. It cost him $22,000 in fines. So we are forcing our farmers to plant monocultures. That has to change. We need to reward them for how many different crops they plant, how many days of the year their fields are green. In other words, how many days of the year their fields are harvesting sunlight for rotations, for um, cover crops, and that kind of thing. Um, diversification of our farms will pay a great many benefits. It will lead to a reduction in the need for fertilizers, reduction in the need for pesticides, um, but it will mean an increase in labor. Fact is, monocultures are really easy. I never actually nailed down how little time it takes to manage a 500-acre corn and bean field over the course of a year and grow those massive quantities of food, but you can measure it in weeks. And it's a good thing, too, because those farmers are growing broke and they need all that time to take jobs in town or drive uh, uh, trucks uh, to subsidize their farms. So it's we're going to need more farmers, and that's another set of policies we need. We're going to need to put 10, 20, 30 more million people on the land. And that's also part of a sun food agenda. Um, we need to support visionary farmers, the ones who've been celebrated here, uh, people like Joel Salatin and Will Allen, who can exploit the power of polyculture to harness sunlight and produce lots of food in small amounts of land. We know we can do it. 
We just need millions more of people like that. Now, can we do this? Can we feed the world sustainably? It's a big question, and I'll give you the honest answer. I don't know. We've had a, a tremendous population explosion that can be attributed to synthetic nitrogen. The fact that we, can, uh, we don't have to get our nitrogen just from the soil, or which is to say from the sun. Um, but we need to find out, because we have not tried. And in the same way, we are going to have to figure out a way to run an industrial civilization without cheap fossil fuel. We will need to find a way to feed ourselves without cheap fossil fuel. And I'm confident, on, based on the models I've seen, that if we can get enough people on the land, we can do it. And that's going to be the hardest part. It's not the technology. Um, so if our farmers are going to diversify, another set of solar policies we need is in the marketplace. They're not going to diversify unless they have markets to sell their food. And that's why what um, Kenny was talking about, about building up local food sheds, really important part of the puzzle. We need policies that encourage them. We need more food shed assessments to be done in every town. We need, in every city. We need four-season farmers markets, so the farmers market movement isn't limited to uh, you know, four or six months of the year. We need to rebuild distribution networks. Right now, it's very hard to get food uh, grown within, say, 50 miles of any city directly to that city without passing through on these crazy distribution routes. Did you know when you buy sustainable salmon from uh, Alaska, supposedly one of the few sustainable fisheries, very often that salmon is flown from Alaska to China to be filleted, and then it comes back here. This doesn't make sense. This, again, is cheap fossil fuel we need to squeeze out of that system. Um, so decentralizing the food system, it has a great many virtues. Um, it will allow farmers to diversify. It will shorten the food chain so that, that healthy food will be fresh, minimally processed food will make it to our cities and our food deserts and our rural food deserts as well because the problem is just as bad in Iowa as it is in West Oakland right now, access to fresh food because it's all being sold globally and nationally. Um, now, the market's already making this happen, um, but there's a lot we can do at the government level to push it. We also need to uh, look at our food assistance programs and add on vouchers to food stamps and WIC that are redeemable at farmer's markets um, and get, <laughs> get access to fresh, fresh, real food to people who need it uh, so they're not confronted with the cookies or the broccoli. Um, and lastly, though, we have to look at ourselves. We have to change the food culture because all of us are implicated in a food system uh, dedicated to the idea of fast, cheap, and easy. Um, there's a lot we can do ourselves. We need to start with our kids. We need gardens in the schools. We need cooking classes in the schools. And we need, uh, you know, a lot of time for lunch. We need more than 10 minutes. We need... We need to teach our children how to eat lunch. And we should give them, as Alice Waters says, give them credit for it. <laughs> I mean, it sounds crazy, but we give them credit for physical education. Why not also edible education? Uh, very important principle. Now, if that sounds kind of paternalistic, do you want the government teaching your kids how to eat? Well, consider that the government is already teaching your kids how to eat. When you give kids chicken nuggets, tater tots, and 10 minutes to eat, you are teaching them how to be the next generation of fast food consumers. And that has to change. 
But we also need to teach adults. And we do this in many, many ways, one of which is we need a second calorie label on all that food. So not only do you see how much fat or, you know, protein or whatever, whatever calories are in that burger, it's 720 calories, by the way, in that one burger, which sells for $3 and something. What if there were fossil fuel calories, too, right under that? Um, so we need that second calorie count on those packages. So you know when you buy every calorie of feedlot beef is 55 calories of, of fossil fuel energy. Um, we need to plant gardens. Very, very important. I mean, and talk about giving access to fresh food to people. It's the cheapest, if you have any land at all, it's the cheapest organic food you can buy. And we need to start cooking again. Really, really important. We're not going to change this food system until we start cooking again. Um, so what happens now? What do we do now? Well, actually nothing, unless we get really well organized and bring pressure to bear. Much stands in the way. Opposition is building. When I go speak at a school that has an agricultural component now, the donors come down like a ton of bricks on the school and force them to offer equal time to the Harris ranches of the world, to the, um, you know, the, the Farm Bureau people. And um, so they are fighting back. Make no mistake. Uh, and we are in that third stage of what Gandhi talked about. You know, first they ignore you, and we had years and years of that. Then they ridicule you, which was a couple years ago. And then they fight you, which is right now. And what's the fourth stage? Then you win. Yeah. But. But it's not that easy. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be really hard. So I want to tell you one story to conclude. Um, I have a friend who uh, had occasion to cook for the Obamas. I want to go back to them for a second, because they are, I think, key to making some of these changes happen. Um, and this was uh, after the election, before they took office. And they were talking about, this was a friend who uh, uh, knows a lot about these issues. And he, it's not me, I'm not pretending to. I, I've never met them. Um, and, uh, and he was talking to Obama and, and, uh, and Miss Obama about this. And, and, and the president-elect was like, yeah, I get it, I hear you. But I don't see a movement out there. I don't see a movement out there for change. And I'm not going to move until you show me the movement. Now, those are important words. He said something else that was interesting that night. He turned to his wife, apparently, according to my friend, and said, baby, maybe this is your issue. <laughs> and look what happened. We got this garden. Um, but what he was saying was very smart, actually. Um, for him to move before there is a movement, uh, it would fail. He is echoing something that LBJ said, Johnson said, to Martin Luther King when he came to him and said, we need your help, we need to pass a Voting Rights Act, shortly after he became president. And Johnson said, well, you go out there and make me do it. That's how politics works. It's, you don't just elect someone who gets it, who sees the world your way, and then sit back and wait for him to do it. He is up against powerful forces, very powerful forces. And, that's what we, and this is how politics works, and that's what we need to do. We need to get out there and show them the movement. We need to make them do it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much.
Thank you. Thank you very much.